Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. <clears throat> this is session number 12 of Till We Have Faces. And today we enter into the long, eventful, and uh, comparatively fun and lighthearted uh, portion of the book after the incredible, painful uh, culmination of that sequence of events with Psyche um, that ended up with those revelations that we were looking at at the end of last time. And beginning, <clears throat> we ended last at the beginning of chapter 16, looking at, okay, Yara, I know that like fun and lighthearted is relative <laughs> within this book, but relative to chapters 14 and 15, you know, it kind of is. Um, but, um, uh, anyhow, yeah, so, um, we're going to be looking at how Orowal responds and what happens to her. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> so yes, um, we're, that's, that's, that's where we're headed. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit more. That's my goal. Pick up the pace a little bit more, uh, here today, but, um, uh, yeah, before we go, I just wanted to, um, you know, this is going to be our last session of uh, calendar year 2023. Um, we, I will not be around next week. Uh, so we'll, our next session will be on Tolkien's birthday on January 3rd uh, in the following week, uh, in the beginning of calendar year 2024. Really looking forward to all of the, uh, the fun stuff that we have going on, all the things that we're going to be doing together uh, in Mythgard Academy. Looking forward to all of the events and moots that we're going to be having. Looking forward to uh, uh, the further development and adventures in the Collaboratory, our new endeavor there. Um, so much to share with you, so much to be doing together with you guys. Really excited and looking forward to that. all of that um, in, uh, in 2024. Um, but... Um, let's, uh, let's move forward. Yes, Eric. Well, I'm glad that, you know, even when I'm going slowly through till we have fa faces, you notice how much faster I'm going <laughs> than in exploring the Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> exactly. Um, but all right, let us, um, let us jump back into the text because I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit late here this evening. So we start with her confrontation with the fox in which it kind of comes crashing home to her that sh she doesn't even know what she can tell to the fox. We were looking last time at the very beginning of that conversation, and one of the things that we were noticing there is that um, the fox the fox's reaction was so strong and so clear because he was 100% convinced that obviously there could not be, she could not, Psyche could not be married to a god, but that she was claiming to be married to someone, and so therefore, since it can't be a god, it must be a human. Um, and therefore, if a human up on the mountains, then an outlaw of some kind. And he began immediately to follow the chain of logic there, which... All, even though she Orwell was claiming to give the fox's perspective to you know she was she was um uh sort of cashing in the fox's own authority with psyche 
in her own arguments with Psyche, yet it's clear that she herself, and she herself comes to the realization, that she never really believed it. Um, that she never really, you know, although she, when she was talking to the fox, it seemed, he made it seem perfectly clear to her that that must be the explanation. And she was like chiding herself a little bit for even entertaining the idea that there was something genuinely, you know, sort of strange and supernatural going on. And yet, um, it became clear during this second conversation, the conversation afterwards, that she had never really actually, even even when she had felt herself to be convinced, she'd never actually believed it. And she herself sees how her own actions um, are quite contrary to that, right? If she had believed, um, the fox immediately says, like, Man, your whole plan with the lamp and everything, like, that's a horrible plan, right? How would you think he's going to respond? Um, I mean, the, the, the sort of, you know, best case scenario is he, like, beats her and drags her off, right? I mean, he's like, it's, 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 I mean, to, again, to him, to the fox, it's just a, an obvious no-brainer. Um, and that her plan is not the plan of someone who is taking that whole reality seriously. Um, Psyche needed to be treated psychiatrically. Right. And I mean, madness was the only thing that would explain, you know, he wanted to give her some dose of hellebore, remember? Um, and um, uh, but again, what Orwell herself even seems to understand is that she. Um, although she was claiming not to believe that it was. The God her actions are really only consistent with that belief. Her plan, the whole lamp by the bedside plan, you know, lamp uh, under, you know, a, under an urn plan, um, is really designed to test the god, her husband. It would be a very bad plan if either the fox or Bardia were correct. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. How else would you treat Psyche, if not psychiatrically? <laughs> Argent. <laughs> it's one of those ways in which it's, uh, um, it's kind of hard to uh, talk about <laughs> this book, or at least that character, right? It's like, well, if we think about her psychology, well, you know, the psychology of Psyche is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, yes, yes. I guess in studying psyche, we're all doing psychology here. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so let's, but of course it's more, there, there are things that are even more sharply uncomfortable for Orwell in the conversation, this conversation with the fox, than this realization that she never really believed in the, in the fox's point of view. The fox stared at me, wondering more and more, I saw, at my silence. At last he said, Did you find it easy to make her do this? No, said I. I had taken off while I ate the veil I had worn all day. Now I greatly wished I had it on. And how did you persuade her? 
he asked. This was the worst of all. I could not tell him what I had really done, nor much of what I'd said. For when I told Psyche that he and Bardia were both agreed about her lover, I meant what was very true. Both agreed it was some shameful or dreadful thing. But if I said this to the fox, he would say that Bardia's belief and his were sheer contraries. The one all old wives' tales, and the other plain workaday probabilities. He would make it seem that I had lied. I could never make him understand how different it had looked on the mountain. Um, yeah, um, Sarah, he would make it seem as if I had lied, right? Sarah says, true to her previous ration, uh, rationales, no room is given for the idea that Orwell has lied, uh, to herself, most of all. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we should be remembering, of course, that business about the, the gods changing the past, Right. He made it as if I had known all along. Right. Um, the fox. Um, remember that she was aware even at the time, like she admitted herself even at the time that she was allowing Psyche to misunderstand. Right, Psyche took her words in one particular way, but it was a way that Orwell thought was favorable, and so she did not think it her responsibility to clarify. Right, and then when later on it came back around to it, she kind of doubles down on it, I think, as I recall. But in any case, like she's aware that there's something dodgy going on there, um, and now she's very. Now that awareness comes back up onto the surface again, right? And she know, she can't tell the fox about the arguments that she made because he is going to expose that. She couldn't possibly get away with that to the fox. Even the kind of omission of correction that she did with Psyche, he would consider shameful. And Sphinx, you're absolutely right. He and Bardia were not agreed at all. What we saw was her, Orwell, that is, taking, like, extracting something, as she sums it up here. Both agreed that it was some shameful or dreadful thing. Okay. Right? Um, that does not mean that they are both agreed on what is happening or on what you should do about it or anything like that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but notice there's something even more subtle that's going on here. She is, Maureen, you're right. She is rationalizing, misleading Psyche. But notice what else she's doing. Notice what else she's doing, even in her own rationalization of her misleading of Psyche. She's not just rationalizing to herself. She's distracting herself. She's avoiding the even more painful questions. Right. Forget the bottom three quarters of that paragraph. Read just the first two sentences. Three sentences. This was the worst of all. 
I could not tell him what I had really done, nor much of what I'd said. Stop. What's, what is she in fact thinking about? What is the primary issue? What is the main thing that she can't, the main thing she can't do is answer the question. How did you persuade her? Because guess what? Telling Psyche that the Fox and Bardia were both agreed about her lover did not persuade her. It's in, it's true. Like it's an issue, right? And yes, she can't tell that to the Fox either. But that it that's not even had has nothing to do with her persuasion. It didn't persuade her. She is retreating. Orowal is hiding from herself. She is like hiding her greater shame behind her lesser shame. Yes. Misrepresenting the fox and Bardia to Psyche was shameful. So shameful that she, she can't admit it to the fox. Um, because he would expose it and he would expose her. But the abusive language, right? The horrible things that she said, the way in which she attempted to emotionally blackmail her and compel her, that she threatened to kill her and herself, that she actually had wounded herself. She conceals the wound from the Vox. She speaks in an earlier passage here in this chapter of how she knows the fox would not, you know, the fox would not have any patience with the idea of, uh, to use his words, uh, bringing in a mercenary army uh, when you're trying to win an argument. And the mercenary army, of course, is the passions. An appeal to the passions is completely out of line. It's like hiring mercenaries. You see, you see the parallel. You, you understand why that's a big deal, right? It's dangerous to win a war by hiring a mercenary army because once you've won the war, you're now in the power of the mercenary army who have no loyalty, loyalty to you other than money, right? They can turn on you. You can't rely on a mercenary army. They can turn on you at any minute if they get another bid. Right. If they get another if they get a higher price or if they think they can extort more money. Right. Um, you can't rely on a mercenary army because they'll undermine. They could at any minute undermine you. And the same is true of the passions. Right. If you believe you can rally, you can inspire someone's passion, someone's strong feelings in support of your argument. Well, those same passions, those same strong feelings can turn against you, right? And undermine your own reason, your own argument. Um, yeah, but um, anyway, she so doesn't want to answer the question, how did you persuade her? She is so far from honest, from honestly revealing to the fox what she did and said to ultimately persuade her. She is forced to confess that no, it was not at all easy to make Psyche do the thing with the lamp. And if it wasn't easy, there must have been, she must have found some way to convince her to do it. Right? I think the fox is not a fool. 
I think the fox knows she did not just use benign and rational argument here. Um, I think he's sort of pushing her towards a confession here. Um, but she does not. She doesn't take it. Not only does she hide it from the fox, she never tells him about her stabbing herself in the arm. Um, I'm pretty sure she never tells her she she never tells him that she threatens to kill Psyche if she doesn't do it and and herself. Um, not only does she not tell him, she doesn't even confront it herself. Again, all of this stuff about the um, you know the the beliefs of Bardia and the Fox, the way in which she misled Psyche. She's just distracting her own self here. Um, we can see in this... Oh, oh, one thing I wanted to say before we move on. One of the things that's really striking to me in her conversation with the fox is watching her conceal... Um, uh, somebody was talking about this, about how, um, how much we already know, like the gap, like the, 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 the fact that we, um, the fact that we know it, right? We know everything that happened. And so we feel the weight of what she doesn't tell to the fox. But I think we, I, 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 I think that the weight of that also kind of comes in in a second way. It's not just that we happen to be in the know, and therefore the things she is omitting are echoing in our own, you know, ears, our own imaginations, right, our own memories, as we're hearing her conversation. You know, this, the silences that do stretch in her conversation with the fox, in those silences we remember what she did and said. But there's more to it than that because she's the narrator. We have all, we have seen her be quite honest, and I, I've talked about this a good deal in the last couple of classes. We have seen her be very transparent about what she feels. Again, not that she understands everything, not that she is admitting things to herself, but we have seen her go out of her way to tell us things that she did not have to tell us. Like the uh, sort of morbid and narcissistic fantasy she was having before Psyche, you know, uh, revealed the lamp. Right? Those, uh, you know, fantasies of her own funeral and everyone loving her when she was dead and all that kind of thing. Right? We absolutely need to know that. You know, someone who is just like a historian or as she claims to be at the beginning, a prosecuting attorney who is presenting the case, right? She is, in that sense, being extremely fair and extremely honest. She is providing the counter-arguments against her. She's providing them with massive quantities of ammunition, right? So she's been... Um, she's been very 
open. We've seen, like we know what we know. We have seen what we've seen because she has not concealed it from us. And so when she does conceal it all from the fox and doesn't conceal her own shame about it from us, though we can see her, I think, even concealing some of it from herself, um, as I was just pointing out how she sort of distracts herself in that previous paragraph. Um, but nevertheless, it just it makes it the more striking when we see her tell such a very partial version of the story to the fox. And again, the the thing that she keeps coming back to in that conversation, like... I say a partial version, like what parts, what percentage of that story can she even tell? It ends up being a really, really small percentage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Here's the big moment we didn't quite get to last time. I made one resolve before I slept, which, though it seems a small matter, made much difference to me in the years that followed. Hitherto, like all my countrywomen, I had gone bareface. Uh, remember that uh, in chapter six, 17, I think it's 17, um, no, 18, um, we're told that in Greece, the women are normally veiled, that the fox has always considered it like slightly scandalous that women go around bareface um, because it's the custom in Greek in Greece for the women to be veiled in public. Um, so anyway, just we haven't even learned that yet, but we will learn that figures that it's worth mentioning. Hitherto, like all my countrywomen, I had gone bareface. On those two journeys up the mountain, I had worn a veil because I wished to be secret. I now determined that I would go always veiled. I have kept this rule, within doors and without, ever since. It is a sort of treaty made with my ugliness. There had been a time in childhood when I didn't yet know I was ugly. Then there was a time, for in this book I must hide none of my shames or follies, when I believed, as girls do, and as Bata was always telling me, that I could make it more tolerable by this or that done to my clothes or my hair. Now I chose to be veiled. The fox that night was the last man who ever saw my face, and not many women have seen it either. Um, yeah, Cal Elros, let's start there for a second. Um, is there any overarching significance to Gloam being barefaced and the Greeks being veiled? Does that point to anything in particular with regard to the fox, or is it supposed to be a greater metaphor on the two cultures? Um, uh, I'm not sure. It's, um, it's complicated, because in some ways, when I think about it, um, sometimes when I think about it, it seems counterintuitive. It seems almost opposite, right? Remember, for instance, how um, we are told that in the Greek lands, they speak with great frankness, even about the gods, right? There's a kind of openness in the Greek lands, whereas things are hidden, things are concealed. Um, matter, you know, sacred matters of the gods are concealed by divine stories, um, which most people are not meant 
fully to understand. Holy places are dark places, right? And so you'd think that in that sense, right, um, Gloam is the veiled place, and Greeks is the bareface place, right? At least, again, that's one easy, you know, quick association that I have with that. Um, but that's not that's not how it works, right? It's in fact, it's in fact the opposite. Um, and I, um, I don't know. I don't know for sure what to do with it, Tell Elros. Um, yeah, I, um, Obviously, there's great significance of Orowal veiling herself, permanently veiling herself. Orowal's face now, from this moment forward, being concealed. Um, that she becomes like a Greek woman, and unlike everybody else in Gloam, seems important, right? But it's just this is right at the nexus of so many different things that it's hard for me to untangle them all. Um, okay, curious chance. That's an interesting way to think about it. If the veil is a kind of distance from the gods, then it follows that the Greeks are more distanced uh, than the Glomish. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I agree. Eric, it's also true that she is also like a Greek woman superficially in some ways. Um, she is, um, you know, she is trained in the fox's way of thinking and follows it in many ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. Kalos, I think I'd want to come at it from the other way. I think I'd want to focus first and primarily on Orowal's veiling and see what we learn about covering and uncovering, the, the covering and uncovering of faces through the specific, rather than generalities of the cultures, through, through specific characters and instances. And then from there, like once we, once we see those things a little bit more clearly, think back to the larger cultural patterns and see how it fits. Um, but it's interesting. And yes, there is a sharp irony here, right? Um, it's the parenthesis to us. That's most ironic. Uh, Jackie, I saw you responding to that irony uh, when I first read it. There was a time, for in this book I must hide none of my shame or my shames or follies, right? And that is very true. She has not been hiding her shames or follies. We have seen them, right? She has told us all about them. And she's, I must hide none of my shames or follies. She sees and feels the imperative to be honest, to bear her face, right? So, um, there's some irony there. 
but more, right? More irony in that statement. Um, she's just said she must hide none of my shames or follies. But why does she put on her veil? Why does she put on her veil? And several of you picked up on this right away. Right? We just saw her. She just had her last barefaced conversation of her life. Right? With the fox. And in that conversation, I had taken off while I ate the veil I had worn all day. Now I greatly wished I had it on. Why does she want to have her veil on? Because she is ashamed to answer his questions. Did you find it easy to make her do this? How did you persuade her? She doesn't want the fox to see her face. She wants to deceive him. She wants, and not even deceive, like she wants to deflect. Right? I Deceive, I mean, yes, she's trying to deceive him in the sense that she's wants him to believe something that isn't the truth, but she doesn't want him to know the truth. But, but it's more than that. Um, it's more than that. Um, she doesn't want him to see her. Yes, she, she fears scrutiny. Exactly. Exactly. She doesn't want her shame to be she would be completely mortified. She knows, she knows what the fox will say. If he were to learn, if she were to tell, if he were to perceive what she'd done, she couldn't bear the shame of his knowing that, of his knowing how she had coerced Psyche. And she's concealing that even from herself. But notice, again, back to the irony of that statement, I must hide none of my shames or follies. We saw her just motivated by the desire to hide her shame as one of the major reasons why she is veiling herself. Um, and then what does she do? What does she do? It is a sort of treaty made with my ugliness. Is that true? Yes. I don't disbelieve anything that she's saying here. But then again, I didn't disbelieve anything that she said in that second paragraph on the previous slide either. It was perfectly true that the fox would correct her and, you know upbraid her for misrepresenting him and his position to Psyche. That's not untrue, but it's not the reason she's ashamed. Her treaty with her ugliness is perfectly true. Her physical ugliness. Perfectly true. Um... But it's not the reason that she's wearing a veil. We will see this more later on. 
um, uh, we see this more later on when um, she will talk about the kind of power that she gains from being veiled. She will have throughout her reign as queen this added mystique because of her veil. It is a, it ends up being a very cunning stratagem for increasing her own power, for increasing her own stature um, by overlaying her own person with an air of mystery. She greatly increases her, the respect and the awe in which she's held. This is a thing that we'll see. And it seems perfectly true. But that doesn't mean that it was the reason, right, that she did it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Now, Liz, I'm trying to be careful here because you're absolutely right. Um, Liz says the way that women are misperceived based on their appearance is very real. And I think this book gets that. Me too. I, I, I agree. I'm not trying to, I, I don't want to undermine the business about her ugliness at all. And uh, we'll come back to that uh, soon uh, when we get into chapter 17. But, um, but it's important to see that at the root, at the start, in this moment, when she, the moment in which she makes this choice, it does not seem that her physical ugliness has anything to do with it. Right. It will factor in. And I don't doubt that her own experience um, as a very unattractive girl has, like, you know, influences her in coming to this decision and adhering to this conviction. Um, I have kept this rule within doors and without ever since. Um, yes, yes. Um, but, but it's not the whole solution, right? It's not the, uh, um, it's not the explanation, certainly not the full explanation, which is how she sort of presents it at the same moment that she says, I must hide none of my shames or follies. But again, this sounds to me like an instance, just like the previous slide where she's not concealing, she's not hiding her shames or follies from us. She has bared her face to us as readers. But what she hasn't done is looked in the mirror. Remember that mirror scene when her father brought her and stood her in front of the mirror and made her look herself in the face and confront her ugliness, right? Um, I mean, that was what the father was prompting her to do when she did that. Um, that was that one occasion, and it was cruel. It was part of the abuse of her father, um, you know, by her father. Um, and yet, as we've been noticing... That's exactly, although it was cruel, although it was horrible, what her father did and why he did it. 
Haven't we also been saying for several weeks now that Orwell's biggest problem is that she is not looking in the mirror and perceiving her inner ugliness? That she's not being honest with herself? That even when she is made to see it, she can't accept it? She thinks even that the gods have changed the past, right? Um, in order to make that be true when it wasn't true, rather than confronting the reality of it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and Liz, you are very correct that one of the things, and this is what makes the whole, um, the whole image, the whole symbol of being covered or being uncovered so complicated in this story. It's the, in some ways, Orwell's veiled face is one of the, uh, really central, like, metaphors of the entire story, Right? But it's really complicated because, Liz, you're quite right. Um, uh, she said, uh, so Eric had said there are good and bad reasons for the move. And Liz said, perhaps the good reasons are not wanting to be seen for, are, are, are not wanting to be seen. Um, basically, wanting to be seen for who she is, right? Um, and yes, like her ugliness. We saw her, her, um, her father, as somebody was just, yeah, Maureen was just remembering how he called her goblin, right? He treated her as subhuman, certainly as useless and valueless, because women were jud are judged on their appearances, and her appearance is ugly. She has no beauty, which is what women are good for, right? It's what makes them useful. I mean, that's the clearly the cultural norm that she's operating in. And um, therefore, her father always dismissed her because she was useless, because she was ugly. And by covering her face, there is a sense. And Liz, I, I, I felt like this is one of the things that you were kind of pointing at. You could say she's hiding herself. Right, but you could also say she's revealing herself that or rather she is forcing people to look since she's not giving them a surface to judge at all. I'm going to remove the surface by which you're judging me, and therefore you will have no choice but to do one of two things: either to discover what I really am, right what's really inside, or to sort of festoon that with myth, right? To imagine what must be with inside. Um, and the tendency is to make that into a great and grandiose thing, as we will see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Sarah, you're right. Uh, Baby making, or more correctly, son making, is the other use uh, of women in, in addition to beauty. But of course, Sarah, 
the beauty is like a sort of prerequisite, especially in a royal daughter, right? Um, not going to be real enticing to many local kings, right, in her current state. Whereas Redival, oh yeah, right, that'll play. Um, and we see, we're reminded of that very quickly. Um, yes. Yeah, Kaora says, I'm just now realizing that designing the cover art for Till We Have Faces must have been one of the most stressful assignments of all time. I hear you. I hear you. And for the record, I don't think I've ever seen a cover of this book that I've loved. Um, it's a challenge that I have never seen met really satisfactorily. Um, I have to admit, I really love... Um, uh, Sharon Hoff made the graphic that I've been using for this class, uh, the faceless statue with the Greek writing behind it. And um, it's actually, that's actually my favorite image for this book. So it's better than any cover I've ever seen um, because they almost always, um, they almost always put some woman's face or other on there. Right. Uh, and, um, uh, and, I, that's almost always going to be a disaster, because you can't have anyone as uh, you can't have anyone as beautiful as Psyche, uh, and you're unlikely to make someone as ugly as Orwell. Um, anyway, it's um, exactly uh, curious. That's exactly it. So it's hard. It's hard. Um, uh, it certainly is, certainly would be a would be a challenge. Um, yeah, Liz, you could do like the the unget rock, right? But that doesn't convey all that much, right? Or, you know, very much, but out of context, it'd be weird. Anyway, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's tough. It's a challenge. Um, all right, let's keep going. We're not going to stop talking and thinking about Orwell's veiling, um, but I wanted to note the context in which it happens. Because it's going to come up again a good, a good bit. A few days later, this is the king, he sent for the fox and me again to the pillar room. As soon as he saw me veiled, he shouted, Now, girl, what's this? Hung your curtains up, eh? Were you afraid we'd be dazzled by our beauty? Take off that frippery. It was then I first found what that night on the mountain had done for me. No one who had seen and heard the god could much fear this roaring old king. "'It's hard if I'm to be scolded both for my face and for hiding it,' said I, putting no hand to the veil. "'Come here,' he said, not at all loud this time. I went up and stood so close to his chair that my knees almost touched his, still as a stone. To see his face, while he could not see mine, seemed to give me a kind of power. He was working himself into one of those white rages.' "'Do you begin to set your wits against mine?' he said, almost in a whisper. "'Yes,' said I, no louder than he, but very clearly. I had not known a moment before what I would do or say. That one little word came out of itself. Um, the, this is one of the first moments. Um, the very first moments after she returns from the mountain and the catastrophe um, are painful, right? The conversation with the fox, 
her shame, um, the, you know, confessing and not confessing her shame, the kind of thing that we've been talking about. Um, this is one of those moments. And this is one of the things that almost always surprises me about this book. He has just shown... Right, Yarrow, you just exactly captured the experience that I'm describing. Yarrow says, as much as Orwell is a frustrating character, I do love her in this moment. Yes. Yes. Um, that's exactly what I was just trying to point to. We've just seen Orwell behave horribly, right? I mean, horribly. Uh, her actions, her words, her actions to Psyche, especially in that second confrontation, are inexcusable, right? I mean, it's inexcusable to try to, you know, emotionally abuse and dominate somebody by threatening to kill them and yourself, right? I mean, like, there's no excuse, no excuse for what she's done. And we see how thoroughly selfish she is, how she can't see anything beyond her own desires, how thoroughly she's deceived herself, all these things, right? All these things that we saw, right? Um, Orwell just looks horrible. Um, she comes off looking terrible on the mountain. And then she comes back into Gloam. And over the course of the next three or four chapters, at least this is always my experience, over the next three or four chapters, he very promptly begins to make us cheer for her. Like, it's it's not exactly that all is forgotten. It's definitely not forgotten. But, but Yarrow, your experience is one that I always have, too. Like, I'm always cheering when she defies her father, right? Do you begin to set your wits against mine? And she just says, yes, and stares him down. Uh, and she never fears him again, right? Well, until he's dying, but that's different. Um, that is, that is so cool. And how she becomes queen and the whole thing with Trunia, we're going to talk about that right a little bit, but, um, and the whole sequence with the battle and everything, it's so cool. Like, Orwell's awesome. And I want to cheer for her. Right. So anyway, it's um, it's very um, it's very it's so complex. So emotion. This book is so emotionally complex in that way. Um, but it's but I just I find it such an accomplishment, such an accomplishment to take us from that. The the dark. Pit of her emotional state um, in that final conversa conversation with uh, Psyche and the horror of the consequences. But then to uh, continue to sort of rally our sympathies to her side, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's amazing. Um, yeah, as Liz says, when she's up against the divine, she looks so small. But when you set her up against other humans, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, um, 
And yes, Scott, as Scott is pointing out, um, the, the passage, one of the things that I wanted to talk about here, it was then I first found what that night on the mountain had done for me. Um, her failure with Psyche has empowered her against everyone else, as Scott says. Yeah, yeah, it has. Um, she is part of what makes her a good and strong queen is the fallout of her experience on the mountain in some way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Ambrosius, you were thinking the same thing. Her newfound strength comes from that terrible numinous experience. Being judged by the god removes all fear of being judged by a mere human. Yes, it does. And yet we know she still there's so much she still has not confronted. We know there is still so much that she's not just drawing a veil over herself. She is there's a part of herself that she is veiling from herself. Right? And we could see it in action in those previous two slides. But yeah. But yeah. Um And, well, Eric, I think you were the one who was talking about how, yes, um, in the Orwell-Psyche relationship, Orwell's selfish, or Orwell is selfish and aggressive, but in the Orwell-King relationship, she's the victim. And then the victim that conquers her abuser, how can you not cheer for this aspect of her life? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, she's this wonderful, um, and, and I agree, Corey, I think you're exactly right. She's a hero. I mean, she, she, she does genuinely heroic things. Um, whether it's like the big flashy stuff that gets the headlines, right? Like her single combat. Um, uh, by which she accomplishes her, you know, political, uh, you know, tour de force there at the very beginning of her reign. Um, but this moment when she stands up to and defies her abuser and ends the abuse forever is just as heroic, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But we also can't forget the king is not only her abuser. The king is... She also, um, she also looks a lot like her father when she's angry, as Psyche pointed out fairly early on, right? Though Orwell did not like to hear it. Uh, and it cut her to hear that. One of those things she doesn't want to look at about herself or admit at all about herself. Um, but yeah, that is a, an element that has to be remembered here. So, and I don't say that in order to try to undermine this, because I don't want to undermine this. This is awesome. I love this scene. And yet also, part of what enables her to face down her father is her likeness to her father as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, JJ, that's really interesting. Hang on, let me stop and think about that for a second. JJ says, insignificant compared to a god. 
yet above, yet way above normal people, seems similar to how Psyche was as well. Yes. Yes. Psyche was always extremely superlative compared to all people. Right? Certainly by Orwell's description, but there seems to be many who agreed with it. Fox. Um, even the, you know, the way that the common people responded to her suggested that everybody thought she was as beautiful as Orwell did. Um, but in any case, yes, uh, Psyche was superlative, and yet we remember Psyche's experience of shame. Not at anything she'd done, not at, you know, immodesty, like being naked or something like that, uh, but just shame at being mortal. Um, when she, when she, the like most superlative of all people in every dimension, right? Uh, uh, beauty, sweetness, morality, right? All these things. She was just the best, right? But when she was placed into that divine context, she was ashamed, right? She was um, inadequate. With, I think that you're right, JJ, that we can see a similar, but with Orwell, it's happening in the other direction, isn't it? That's never been Orwell's experience. She's never stood out except being really ugly. It's the only way she stood out, right? But after her encounter on the mountain, there's another thing that that night on the mountain had done for her. What is the premise of this? It's her, her veiling, right? She's veiled herself. Now that she is veiled, she is soon, she is quickly, beginning here with the king and moving forward through the subsequent events, she's going to make herself heroic. She's going to show herself to be a hero, as we were discussing. She is going to, and until by the time we get to the end, Orwell, Queen of Gloam, is going to be this quasi-divine figure. Because so superlative, standing out among all humans. Separated even, like, almost from their humanity, even, because of her facelessness. Right? Is she even mortal? Um, in decades to come, that will be a question people will be asking about Orwell. You also shall be Psyche. Right? <laughs> Devorah, you're just thinking exactly the same thing. That's it. You also shall be Psyche. Um, yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yes. Yep. And, uh, Sphinx is exactly right, JJ. We do want to hold on to the idea that there is already a faceless female deity already. Orowal. The stone, right? The lump of rock that emerged from the ground. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Let's keep going. This and all other things that were happening in the palace mattered to me not at all. I was like a condemned man waiting for his executioner, for I believed that some sudden stroke of the gods would fall on me very soon. Remember, she was thinking that way when they were riding down. She was like, which cliff are we going to tumble off? Right? She was convinced that the god was going to strike her down. He didn't strike her dead immediately. Right? But surely any second now it's going to come. Right? So she was just waiting. 
you know, by what uh, sudden stroke of ill fortune was she going to be stricken dead. So she's still waiting for the same, some sudden stroke of the gods that will fall on her very soon. Probably not to kill her, but to turn her into, to, 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 to cast her out, right? To turn her into a, a vagabond, uh, to have her wandering the world in misery like Psyche, because she also shall be Psyche. But as day came after day and nothing happened, I began to see at first very unwillingly that I might be doomed to live, and even to live an unchanged life some while longer. When I understood this, I went to Psyche's room, alone, and put everything in it as it had been before all our sorrows began. I found some verses in Greek, which seemed to be a hymn to the god of the mountain. These I burned. I did not choose that any of that part of her should remain. Even the clothes that she had worn in the last year I burned also. But those she had worn earlier, and especially what were left of those she wore in childhood, and any jewels she had loved as a child, I hung in their proper places. I wished all to be so ordered that if she could come back, she would find all as it had been when she was still happy and still mine. Then I locked the door and put a seal on it. And, as well as I could, I locked a door in my mind. Unless I were to go mad, I must put away all thoughts of her, save those that went back to her first happy years. I never spoke of her. If my women mentioned her name, I bade them be silent. If the fox mentioned it, I was silent myself, and led him to other things. There was less comfort than of old in being with the fox. Um, yes, Mary, you are exactly correct. What she does with this preservation of her bedroom, of Psyche's bedroom, is exactly the kind of stasis that she was wanting to put Psyche herself in. Right? I just want to make you a child again, and then keep you that way permanently. Right? Um, I don't want... It's not only that I don't want to lose the relationship that we've had. I never want it to change. And yes, of course, you... Um, uh, you're all very sensitive to that stinging final phrase, and still mine, right? Um, the extent to which she is not thinking of Psyche. She's thinking of herself. Maureen, as you say, um, Psyche would come back and find the place as it was when she was happy, or when Orawal was happy, right? Um, as we saw very clearly, right, very explicitly, the um, Orawal, it was not Psyche's happiness that Orawal cared about. If it had been, she'd have left her, because Psyche clearly was happy. Um, it was Orawal's own happiness that she most cared about and was most concerned about. And that is clearly what is being preserved. That memory is being preserved in that room. And notice that she... <laughs> Curious chance, that's wonderful. She wants to put away all but the childish things. <laughs> yes. Sorry, that's a, that's, a, that's a very funny but obscure joke. Let me explain it to those who don't get it. Um, he's playing on the King James translation of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, uh, when I became old, I put away childish things, right? Um, uh, uh, when that's, uh, Paul 
the Apostle Paul says that, you know, when I became a man, uh, I put away childish things. And so, yeah, she wants to put away all but the childish things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, that passage where Paul goes on to talk about seeing through a glass darkly, uh, very relevant to this book, to this whole thing, right? Remember that seeing through a glass, that means a mirror. Um, so to see through a glass darkly means to see in a mirror uh, like a poor reflection that you can't see very clearly, right? Um, and certainly Orwal, in as much as she is looking in a glass, and I think she's rather avoiding looking in glasses, um, she is... Uh, um, any glass she looks in, she is certainly seeing darkly in. And Maureen, exactly as Maureen is remembering, that passage is the one where Paul goes on to say that in that day we will see face to face. So yes, yes, that whole passage, very important uh, to this uh, to this book. Um, it might be might be worthwhile down the road. Not yet, but down the road, actually to look at that passage in a little more detail. Um, but um, anyway, uh, and by that passage, honestly, I mean all of 1 Corinthians 13, really, but um, which is the love chapter. It's all about love um, and thus relevant, <laughs> relevant to uh, Orwell here um, and Psyche and all of it. Anyhow, um, we'll get there. I will. We'll come to it. Um, she is. She doesn't just put Psyche's bedroom. She doesn't just set aside all but the childish things in Psyche's room. She also puts a seal on the door. She creates this like illusion of permanent childhood, right? But then she shuts it away. She doesn't just preserve it. She doesn't just, like, make it into a museum exhibit, right? Like a carefully maintained museum exhibit. She seals the door so that she herself can't even see it. Yeah, it's more like a time capsule. Devorah, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let me just say, I think it is important to note the similarity. Resonance, maybe, is a better image. Between... Orwell permanently veiling herself and never letting anyone see her face ever again as much as she can avoid it. And the locking of the door of Psyche's room and the placing of a seal upon the door so that nobody, nobody may ever go in and see Psyche and Psyche's things. And um, no one may ever speak of Psyche again. She has veiled Psyche also. And the 
the image of the veil over the face and the locked door of the room, they're not the same image, right? They don't point to the same thing, but there's, there's definitely a connection there that we would do well, I think, to remember. My aim was to build up more and more of that, more and more that strength, hard and joyless. Sorry, this is, um, I believe, uh, no, I think this is still the end of chapter 16. I think that's true. My aim was to build up more and more that strength, hard and joyless, which had come to me when I heard the God's sentence by learning, fighting and laboring to drive all the woman out of me. Sometimes at night, if the wind howled or the rain fell, there would leap upon me like water from a bursting dam, a great and anguished wonder, whether Psyche was alive, where she was on such a night, and whether hard wives of peasants were turning her cold and famished from their door. But then, after an hour or so of weeping and writhing and calling out upon the gods, I would set to and rebuild the dam. Um... I think, Morgul Hamster, when she is describing the strength that had come to me when I heard the God's sentence, not like in the moment. It's it's not that she felt like invigorated with strength upon the God's words, right? Or like the God's words filled her instantly with strength. It's like, it's not that she's saying strength was conferred to her, though remember, in a sense it was. And we see that strength. We see her exert that new strength that she receives in that moment in the confrontation with her father, right? But I, but it's not just that. It's what she was thinking about afterwards. It's her thought process as she's riding down the mountain with Graham the next day. It's that thought of, they can do nothing worse to me. It's the resolution. It's the resolve that she has that the gods are going to... She knows she is doomed. There's no question of getting off the hook as far as she can see, right? She knows she's a condemned woman. And she's now just waiting for the sentence. And there's a kind of resolution that that brings. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and she seeks to build it up. That hard and joyless strength. By learning, fighting, and laboring to drive all the woman out of me. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't think... Okay. On the one hand, I don't think she's speaking merely in... Um, like, gender terms. Like, I do not believe that she is saying she is laboring to drive all the women out of her in order to make herself more masculine instead. That's what I think she's not saying there. I think when she talks about driving the woman out of her, she means mostly driving the humanity out of her. She doesn't want to feel anything. She doesn't want, she doesn't want to be... Yeah, all the womanly feelings. Exactly, Emily. That's why I can't... I don't want to totally distance it from the kind of, um, uh, you know, gendered concepts that her society definitely has 
right, about women and how women are. Um, softness. Yeah, see, Jackie, softness. I don't know if you're thinking <laughs> of Lady Macbeth, but Eric was, right? I don't know, but that's exactly what I think she's not saying. Okay, that's mostly what I think she's not saying. Um, or rather, I think she's saying much more than that. Um, and for those of you who don't remember, remember the, the speech uh, when Lady Macbeth hears about the prophecy of kingship and uh, she immediately is like, okay, you know, we're going to like murder everybody who gets in our way. Um, and uh, it, her unsex me here speech um, where she talks about the the milk of human kindness in her breasts should be turned to gall and all that kind of thing, right? Um, uh, I there, Lady Macbeth is explicitly talking about like the 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 softness, the tenderness, the compassion, um, the the sort of uh, you know uh, care and nurturing and generosity associated with women. Um, uh, those are the things that she's driving away. She's going to be hard, uh, cold, and resolute instead. Um, and, uh, she's going to do everything, you know, whatever needs to get done. Um, but, uh, I don't think, I think if we let ourselves, it's easy to hear drive all the women out of me as an echo of Lady Macbeth's, you know, unsex me now speech. Um, but I don't think that that's what Orwell is saying. It's what Orwell is saying is like that. But it's, there's, it's, but it's not the same. Um, it's not the same. Uh, I, it's, it's, it's complicated. I don't want to say she's not saying that because she is to some extent. Um, though in a very different way, right? If you think about it, Lady Macbeth wants to drive the feminine softness out of her character um, because she wants to prepare to do guilty deeds, right? And have the resolution to, to do them. Orwell has done guilty deeds and it's that guilt that in part is driving her to partake of that hard and joyless strength, to take refuge in that hard and joyless strength, because she doesn't want to face it. Um, so, Mary, her relationship with Bardia is exactly why I am most resistant. That is the primary reason I am resistant to hearing Orwell say, I don't want to be a woman anymore. Because she totally does want to be a woman, still. She never stops being a woman, thinking of herself as a woman, um, in some ways, right? Um, yes. Jackie, I agree. Orwell, as you say, Orwell has to lose all of her softness in order to cope with her failures. Yes. Yes. Well, Jackie, Bardia relates to her as a comrade more than as a woman. Um, but, um, but anyway, again, I, I don't think, 
all of these things are in some ways, I, I'm not saying it's not relevant here, but what I'm saying is I think if we're only thinking in these kind of gendered terms, we're missing at least half of what she's saying. What she also wants to drive out is the mortal in her. She is a woman. She's a mortal woman and she does not want to be that anymore. And this, I think, is another way in which she is connecting that hard and joyless strength to the God's sentence, to the sound of the God's voice. Remember how dispassionate the God was? That's what she wants to be. By learning, fighting, and laboring, she wants to drive all the women out of her. All of the, she wants to get rid of the mercenary army. Right? All of those passions. Not just feminine passions, but human passions. Um, and I think that if we, if we just are thinking about gender stuff, we're going to miss that other really, really important element of this. Um, and yes, Jackie, there is a way in which she is... Um, there's a way in which she is being like, this sounds like the Fox's perfect student, right? He keeps talking about she, Orwell, has the chance to advance further in philosophy than he did, right? He considers his own passions a weakness, right? And a sign of how, you know, far he hasn't come, right, in the, in the path of philosophy, this in on one in one sense sounds like the perfection of the fox's philosophy and yet um yeah yeah curious chance yes that is i think an important element of it that the grief is not gendered it's mortal yeah exactly um not saying the gender is irrelevant but that again but that i feel that we really have to we have to hear that we have to we have to we have to see that too um yeah. Sarah, great question. Um, she grows into and gratefully uses power. Isn't that a passion too? Not necessarily. Uh, remember that God was exerting power. That was a display of power that made a strong impression upon her, right? But done totally dispassionately. Um, the king was very passionate in his exertion of power. But remember, as we've always seen, the passion of the king is what lessened him. He was all more like a... Not only was he not seeming like a god. Remember, they're supposed to be the divine line, right? The the royal blood of Glom. They're supposed to be god-ish, right? Not gods, but, you know, of divine blood. Um... But far from seeming like a god, he seemed like a, an animal when he was in one of his white rages. Like when he stabs the boy and doesn't even remember doing it, right? Um, the slave boy. Uh, him chasing after to have sex with um, uh, any woman he considers savory, right? Um, this is not the action of a god. This is the action of, again, more, more like a beast, right? So in as much as he was guided by, guided, ruled, right? Um, 
by his passions. He was his power was the less, even though he felt he was exerting it, right? Um, oh, but Sphinx, don't forget all that stuff about the actions of Zeus. Lies of the poets. Lies of the poets. Right. I just don't forget that. Don't forget it's important. Um, uh, that's exactly what the fox is talking about, right? Okay. Um, notice her um, all folly child. Exactly. Exactly. Curious chance. Um, the metaphor. The dam. That would leap upon me like water bursting from a dam. A great and anguished wonder. Um... This is a third metaphor, right? The veil covering her face, the sealed door closing in her memories of Psyche, the dam that holds back, the the great and anguished wonder that leaves her weeping and writhing and calling out upon the gods. The flood of tears. Um, these are. I'm not saying that these are three metaphors for exactly the same thing, but we can see the sort of connections between them, right? Um, yes. Um, yes. Okay. I wanted to do this whole scene, but there's not time. When she becomes queen. It's likely, said Arnhem. Remember, Arnhem is the junior assistant of this scary, mean old uh, priest of Ungit. Um, It's likely, said Arnhem, that this will end in the king's death. So, thought I, this is how it will begin. There will be a new world in Gloom, and if I get off with my life, I shall be driven out. I, too, shall be a psyche. Immediately, she's like, okay, I know, I see exactly where this is going. So this is the stroke I've been waiting for, right? The gods were just toying with me here for a while, letting me live on what seemed to be a normal life, and now, with the king's sudden death, I'm going to get cast out, and, you know, everything's going to be... And then I'm going to be wandering the world like Psyche. Knew it, right? Just was waiting to see... So this is how it's going to happen. I think the same, said the fox. By the way, I love that. Um, the fox is responding to Arnim's words, right? But there's this moment of disorientation where it sounds like the fox is responding to her thoughts, right? Um, I think the same, said the fox. And it comes at a ticklish time. There's much business before us. More than you think, Lysias, said Arnim. I had never heard the fox called by his real name before. The house of Ungit is in the very same plight as the king's house. What do you mean, Arnhem? said Bardia. The priest is dying at last. If I have any skill, he'll not last five days. <laughs> I don't think Arnhem means that um, he is uh, exerting his skill to ensure that the ki- that the priest dies within five days. Um, that that's, that's It was perhaps poorly phrased on his part. Um... If I have any skill in diagnosis, I believe, is what he means. <laughs> but he, he perhaps could have worded it more cautiously. Anyway, and you to succeed him, said Bardia. The priest bowed his head. 
Unless the king forbids, added the fox. This was good law in Gloam. And skipping a little bit because I couldn't fit it all in the slide. It's our good fortune, said Bardia, that there's no cause of quarrel between the queen and Ungit. The queen, said Arnhem. The queen, said Bardia and the fox, now both together. Bardia and the fox, both agreeing. If only the princess were married now, said Arnhem, bowing very courteously. A woman cannot lead the armies of Gloam in war. This queen can, said Bardia, and the way he thrust out his lower jaw made him seem a whole army himself. I saw Arnhem looking at me hard, and I think my veil served me better than the boldest countenance in the world, maybe better than beauty would have done. In part, I just love this scene. Again, like, it's so awesome, right? The way that all of this comes. And not only that, but to see not only the 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 beauty. I mean, again, you as awful as Orwell has been, I don't want her to fail. I'm sure we've all been there, right? With protagonists of books, protagonists of books who are so horrible, um, like who do horrible things that it really compromises your ability to even like wish them well over the course of the rest of the book. I have to admit, I, I, this is, I've never gotten over that problem with, um, if you ever read the Stephen R. Donaldson books, the, um, Thomas Covenant series, um, I always, I could never get over it. Um, uh, Thomas Covenant is just horrible. And, um, like from the moment he commits rape in the first book, I was just like, yep, that I'm good. I'm done. I got, and then like, I just, I couldn't, like, I couldn't, I couldn't cheer for him ever. Like I, I could never come back around. Um, and I find it remarkable that as horrible as, as horrible as Orwell has been, she is not, Emily, exactly. She is not, um, exactly an anti-hero either. She's not somebody I just want to fail. Um, I have this undeniable glow when, oh man, that line, the queen, said Bardia and the fox now both together. Oh man, so good. So good. Um, uh, but, um, uh, and then like, but it's not just that, right? It's not just the heartwarming support from Bardia and the Fox, but then her own actions, right? And the, uh, the quick negotiation and the bargain that she strikes about the crumbles, as they call them, the patch of land, um, and the temple guards, like you see, like she's got mad skills, right? She's gonna be a great queen. I mean, this is a sharp minded woman and a brilliant politician, um, yeah, it just, you see it's all of these things become clear so quickly in the middle of this, um, in the middle of this, uh, this, this, this scene, this whole, uh, uh, this whole element, but notice impassing. This is also the first time Bardia uses the phrase, the queen first. There is no... Uh, it is our good fortune that there is no cause of quarrel between the queen and Ungit. Um, 
And there is this question. It is not merely a title that is applied to Orwell. I mean, it is, but it's not only that, right? The whole question with Arnhem is, okay, so there's this idea of the Queen of Gloam, right? And there's Orwell right here. Are they, is that going to happen, right? Is that going to work? Um, can it be Orwell? Um, yeah, Ambrosius, <laughs> that's a really great point. For all her pride towards Psyche, Orwell had never really considered her actual virtues, which could be of service to her people. She is almost as ignorant of her virtues as she is of her vices. <laughs> it's true. It's like, poor Orwell. Like, what does she know about herself? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness, Maureen. And you are so right. I mean, holy cow. Um, the almost, like, appalling irony of that phrase, right? There's no cause of quarrel between the queen and Ungit? <laughs> you think? Really? <laughs> you sure about that, Bardia? I don't know. I don't know. I think there might be a cause of quarrel between the queen and Ungit, actually. Um, not in the way that he means. He's speaking politically, right? But, um, but who boy, Bardia has no idea. Um, yeah. And Eric, no, no. Um, the idea of queen or king and Ungit, those are separated, right? I and mean, it's one of the things that in the good law of Gloam, right? It's good law that there's, there's, um, there's like a checks and balances system, right? Between the priest of Ungit and the king, right? Um, so that is to say there is an almost complete separation of royal authority on the one hand and the sort of spiritual authority of Ungit on the other hand. However, um, I say almost complete because we saw the priest of Ungit exert his power over the king in the issue of the sacrificing of Psyche. But also we must remember that the king and his line are of divine blood, right? So they're not wholly independent of the gods either. But, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yes, it's not politics, it's personal. Yes, exactly, Deborah. Um, yes. Um, okay. I stood outside of the great hall, which was empty and the fire low. It was as strange a moment as any in my life. To be a queen. That would not sweeten the bitter water against which I had been building the dam in my soul. It might strengthen the dam, though. Then, as a quite different thing, came the thought that my father would be dead. That struck me dizzy. The largeness of a world in which he was not. The clear light of a sky in which that cloud would no longer hang. Freedom. I drew in a long breath. One way the sweetest I had ever drawn. I came near to forgetting my great central sorrow. But only for a moment. 
I was very still, and most of the household was in bed. I thought I heard a sound of weeping, a girl's weeping, the sound for which always, with or without my will, I was listening. It seemed to come from without, from behind the palace. Instantly, crowns and policies and my father were a thousand leagues from my mind. In a torture of hope, I went swiftly to the other end of the hall, and then out by the little door between the dairy and the guard's quarters. The moon was shining, but the air was not so still as I thought. And where now was the weeping? Then I thought I heard it again. Psyche! I called. Istra! Psyche! I went to the sound. Now I was less sure what it was. I remembered that when the chains of the wells swung a little, and there had been breeze enough to sway them just now, they could make a noise something like that. Oh, the cheat of it, the bitterness. Yes, oh, it, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, the, the layers of irony that just... Um, you know, sort of keep appearing as you peel them away um, again and again throughout this book in so many different places. Yes, the irony of her breath of freedom here um, after she tried to constrain Psyche in the way that she did, right? Um, yes, the chains, right? The chains. She mistook the, ch the swinging of the chains Speaking of freedom, right? Um, for the uh, for the for the weeping, the weeping of psyche. We see this moment of the dam breaking. That dam, which um, might be strengthened by being a queen, by the freedom, right? this sweet breath of freedom that she's drawing in literally and metaphorically, right? Um, and then the dam breaks immediately. I love this. Yes, Maureen, the... It's very hard not to hear the pun. Right. Um, about how her soul is damned. Yes. Yes. She has damned her soul. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but wait, I was going to say something else. What was I about to say? I was about to say... Oh, yeah. Um... the sweetening of the bitter water. Uh, you remember, um, you remember the, the Bible reference there? Just to make sure people are tracking it if you're not familiar. Exodus. Uh, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, had left Egypt, um, and they come upon a place called Mara, bitterness. Uh, uh, and, be, and they find, they're thirsty. They're in the desert and they find water to drink. But the water is bitter. It's, it's not potable water. Um, and so Moses throws the wood 
like a tree, uh, into the water, and the bitter water is made sweet. Um, not going to do anything with that parallel, just want to make it explicit. Um, I don't think... Yeah. I don't think you can escape that connection with the phrase sweeten the bitter water. Um, yes. Yes. Um, there was another line I was just going to talk about, but I've forgotten which one it was. Oh, yes. The sound for which I always, with or without my will, I was listening. For which always, with or without my will, I was listening. She can try to dam up her soul. She can cover her face. She can seal the door. She can dam up the bitter waters that would flood through her soul. But with or without her will, she is always listening for the sound of weeping. Um... Yes, Eric, you can't fully suppress your humanity. Um, she will never be so full of what was the phrase hard and joyless strength that she will entirely get rid of the woman, the mortal, in her. Um, yes. The cheat of it. The bitterness. And while she's out there, she happens to run into Prince Trunia of Fars. Remember, Fars is the large, intermittently hostile kingdom that borders Glom. Uh, Fars is one of the uh, primary sort of political realities of, uh, of Glom, right? A, a slender, tall man stepped out of the bushes. A suppliant, he said, but with a merriment in his voice that did not sound like supplication, and one who never let a pretty girl go without a kiss. He'd have had an arm around my neck in a moment if I hadn't avoided him. Then he saw my dagger point twinkle in the moonlight and laughed. You've good eyes if you can see beauty in this face, said I, turning it on him to make sure he saw the blank wall of the veil. Only good ears, sister, said he. I'll bet a girl with a voice like yours is beautiful. The whole adventure was, for such a woman as I, so unusual that I almost had a fool's wish to lengthen it. The very world was strange that night, but I came to my senses. Um, yeah, look, there's a prince in the bushes. I know, right? How weird. How random. And she would never have found him, or at the very least it would not have been her who found him. Uh, if... Um, it hadn't been for this sound of the chains swinging that made her think of Psyche and made her go rushing out in desperate, bitter, and disappointed hope. Um, are we supposed to meant to think of farce when we read farce? I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. 
Um, especially when we see it, P-H-A-R-S. Um, we might think of the Pharsalia, um, which is the fourth or fifth most famous Latin poem, basically. Um, the Pharsalia, it's a Latin poem about the civil wars, uh, Roman civil wars. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, Yes, Mary, I like the way the play there, right? The twinkle in the moonlight, which sounds so cute and romantic, uh, but it's her dagger point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lovely play on the, like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a comical reversal, right, of, a, of a, uh, a love meeting in the bushes, which is what she assumes, like, this is some dude who's, like, hanging out to, to hook up with Redival. Right, is is her first assumption when she sees it. Um, yeah, we see here. This is one of the places I, that I mentioned before when we were talking about this. Liz, I think you were talking about um, the veil and its connection with her physical beauty and what other people think of her physically. Right, um, and I said we're that's totally. It's obviously it's not the whole story, but the, it, that's definitely a part of it. And this is one of the first places that we see it. Right. Um, the woman, the girl who has always been not just dismissed, but reviled as hideously ugly, is now being flirted with. As soon as she puts her veil on, practically, right, within the narrative anyway, as soon as she puts her veil on, uh, an, an indeterminate amount of time has passed. You know, between I don't know exactly how much time has passed between when she descended from the mountain the last time and now, um, but um, uh, but yes, now all of a sudden she's uh, a presumed beauty. He just focuses on how beautiful her voice is, which presumably is the same voice she's always had, but it's never struck anybody else as beautiful, right? Because now there is just the blank wall of her veil. Now, he's just flirting. This is what he does, right? Um, and yet, um, uh, and yet, she is struck by it. For such a woman as I, right? That's her, um, Orwell can put it no plainer <laughs> than to say, for such a woman as I, right? Um so unusual. This whole adventure was for such a woman as I, so unusual. She has never been flirted with in her entire life. Right. Um, yes. Um, the very world was strange that night. The temptation to lengthen it. To, like, let him flirt. To enjoy, you know, this thing that's never happened to her before. She is tempted. Um, oh, that is such a wonderful observation, Corey. Corey's pointing out, why doesn't this count as a love speech? She said that Bardia's comment about, um, you know, if a man were blind and she weren't a princess, she might make him a good wife member. And she says that was the closest to a love speech that anyone ever made me. 
I think the reason this doesn't count, it's not Bardia saying it. <laughs> it's, I think, why. It's because she's dismissive of it. Um, I think it's because it's not from Bardia. Is why it doesn't count. Um, uh, and also, yes, Kala Elros, I do agree. She's also the queen now and not Orawal. And this is one of the places where we begin to see the division. Right. Um, yes. Yes. Um, but yes, also, exactly, Corey. It, it, this doesn't, she knows this doesn't mean anything. Right. I mean, he was going, he was making a move, right? He was trying to put his arm around her neck to kiss her. And, you know, they'd encountered each other all of 15 seconds before. So uh, not exactly, his attention's not exactly well grounded in, uh, um, you know, uh, an objective assessment of her person or personality or anything. Um, yes, seems very much like the kind of guy who flirts with literally every girl. Why? Why? Why do guys like that flirt with every girl? It's about, well, there are lots of reasons, but primarily it's about power, Maureen. I agree. Um, you first and foremost, uh, if you can, for men and women, both, sexual allure, sexual attractiveness is a an instrument of power. Um, gives you power over others. And Trunia seems to know. He is a good-looking young prince. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, Morgul Hamster also, even just in the sense of defining the relationship from the beginning on his terms. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I am asserting control over this relationship I now have with you as a stranger. Right. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm defining you. I'm defining me in relationship to you. I'm defining this encounter that we're having. I'm setting the ground rules. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to say that's why all guys do that, but I kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's, it is sort of what's, um, um, sort of what's happening. Um, he's playing a game. That's the most generous, I think, way to look at it. I mean, I don't think he's just... I, I, Trunia seems to be a genuinely nice guy, as far as I can tell. Right? I mean, I don't think we see any evidence that Trunia is not what he, like, represents himself to be. Um, I'm not trying to make him sound awful. Um, but it seems that um, Orwell herself is not confident that he is uh, you know, being spontaneous and genuine here. Right. Um, he darted away as if he were not weary at all, though I had heard weariness in his voice, and ran as one who is used to it. 
but that flight was his undoing. I could have told him where the old millstone lay. He fell sprawling, made to leap up again with wonderful quickness, then gave a sharp hiss of pain, struggled, cursed, and was still. Remember why he's running away? He's running away because she immediately realizes if, by law, if she accepts him as a supplicant, she's made a political statement, which she does not want to make because it risks um, war with his brother, whom he's at war with, right? The civil war in Fars, as we learned before, but we're now encountering it directly. So she said, you can stay here. I'll give you sanctuary, but only as my prisoner. And he tries to run away because he assumes that if he is taken prisoner, he could be turned over to his brother who would execute him. Right. Um, Sprained if not broken, he said. Plague on the god that invented man's ankle. Well, you may call your spears, queen. Prisoner it is. And that prison leads to my brother's hangman? We'll save you if we can, said I. If we can do it in any way without full war against Fars, we'll do it. The guards' quarters were on that side of the house, as I have said, and it was easy enough to go within calling distance of the men and yet keep my eye on the prince. As soon as I heard them turning out, I said, Pull your hood over your face. The fewer who know my prisoner's name, the freer my hands will be. They got him up and brought him hobbling into the hall and put him on the settle by the hearth, and I called for wine and victuals to be brought him and for the barber to bind up his ankle. Um, another face veiling, Eric. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Jackie, I love the reference to the barber. Um, the barber who is also, uh, often the surgeon because he's good with a knife. Right. Um, uh, Oh, where was this line from? A Saturday Night Live sketch? My wife's a doctor, and one of her favorite quotes is uh, what, what she will often say to me, you know, when, like, she's examining a wound of mine or something and telling me what to do, and I don't want to do it. Um, she will almost always say, who's the barber here? Um, I forget where that line, I think it was from a Saturday Night Live sketch, but uh, uh, she always loved that line, who's the barber here? Um and uh, often quotes it, as I say. Um, but um, anyway, okay. The veiling, yes. Um, that he comes into the house veiled is, I mean, you just, you just have to love that, right? Um, and notice we see here a sort of a small reflection of several things, right? One, there's power in the veiling, right? There's, just as there's power in her... She is in a position of power. She first tasted that in that confrontation with her father. The fact that she could see his face and he could not see hers gave her power. The fact that she, her face couldn't be seen, so he couldn't tell whether she was ugly or beautiful, and chose to imagine her as however he wanted to imagine her gave her power over him as well, right? Um, yes. Um, now we see his she veils him and thus retains the maximum possible power 
over the situation. The fewer who know my prisoner's name, the freer my hands will be. The more freedom I will have to act, the more power I will have. Freedom and power, both associated with the veiling. Right? The more power I will retain over the situation, the least my hands will be forced. Um, there's another parallel that I I don't know what to do with, but I couldn't get out of my head. So I'll just put it out there and we'll see as we go along if we think it's useful. Bringing him in wounded, um, crippled by the weakness of man's ankle, right? Uh, limited by his mortal frame in that way, veiled, brought in to the hall, set by the hearth, and given wine and vittles when he was thinking he might be seeing a prison and then an executioner, right? I could not help but think of Psyche being brought into the house of the god. She thought she was going to be killed. She thought she was going to be devoured. She was expecting execution. And instead, she is received kindly, generously, into a place where she had no right to expect welcome. Right? Um, anyway, um, as I say, I'm not 100% sure what to do with it. The parallel isn't perfect, of course, but I, that's what I kept thinking of. I couldn't shake it. Last thing that I want to say, and then we should probably go. Um, we didn't quite finish Chapter 17, but that's okay. Um, have you noticed what's been happening here? Have you been noticing this string of really unlikely coincidences? Descending from the mountain, she was waiting for the stroke of fate, right? For the, the doom to be executed upon her. Some freak thing was going to happen. Maybe a tree was going to drop a branch on her head. Maybe, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the horse was going to skid off a cliff, whatever it was. Um, and it never happened. And now look what's happening. Her father, she stands up to her father, frees herself from his control. Then he has a freak accident, breaks his leg, and is incapacitated. And then coincidentally, at that same moment, the priest of Ungat is also dying. So that she doesn't have to deal, be confirmed by the priest of Ungat. She has to negotiate with Arnim, who's like their bud. Right? The fox and Arnhem are really close. Um, so the way is just paved for her to become queen. And then, right after that, like that same night or whatever, she thinks she hears Psyche weeping and goes rushing out and then is trying to rebuild the dam in her soul when 
wouldn't you know it, there's a Prince of Fars in the bushes right there whom she happens to encounter instead of anyone else in order to enable her to do the whole thing that she's about to do. And just in case that was not enough of a stroke of luck, he is prevented from escaping by luck. Again. Um, in the night. <laughs> like a sacrificial lamb in the thicket. Giving you a kind of Genesis 22 vibe there. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, explanation for those who don't get it. When Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. Um, and then God tells him to stop before he does it. And uh, there's a there's a ram caught in the bushes right nearby for him to sacrifice and sin. Um, yes. Eric says, if only the gods would just send her a sign. Yeah, I know. It's really, it's really too bad that the gods are so reticent in uh, making their will known, right, in this story. Um, yeah. <laughs> Calero says he's a sacrifice to Redival, perhaps. Possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, no, there's, I, yeah, I, I don't want to lean too heavily into Trunia being a sacrifice. First of all, it seems a little unkind to read of all, but, um, uh, but, but in any case, as a, a divine sign, right, as a manifest, as a, as a gift, right, and not as sacrifice necessarily, but as, as like, um, the, the ram, the important thing about the ram that's caught in the bushes there is that God provides it. Right, it's a miraculous provision from God, provision for the current need, which was a sacrifice. Right, um, but uh, but yeah, um, there's Trunia, who is um, in the bushes first, and then functionally snared in the bushes. Right, um, the he is certainly a political. Providence for Orowal um, in multiple dimensions, as we see. All right. Um, so I am delighted to um, end this class on such a happy note. Everything's just going swimmingly for Orowal. She's queen now. Her father's dying. That seems kind of sad, but in her case, it's a good thing. And, um, uh, and now, you know, the way is being paved for her to establish peace with Fars and establish herself as a legendary hero of Gloam. Oh man, this is, uh, everything's, this is great, right? We are plowing our way towards a happy ending for Orwell's story, aren't we? That's good. That's good. Fun and lighthearted, Yarrow. That's exactly it, right? Fun and lighthearted. Um, so there we go. So you may comfort yourselves with these cheerful thoughts over the next fortnight, um, which, of course, includes the holidays, Christmas and New Year's. And so um, I, uh, I hope you all will enjoy this time, these holidays, and uh, then we will see you guys again um, on uh, the professor's birthday, indeed, on January 3rd. Um, Exactly. We'll go to sleep dreaming of Trunia and what could be better, right? All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me, as always. And we'll be back in a couple... Oh, uh, what to read. Um, so, we didn't quite finish 17, um, but read, th read through 19. 
I'm just, I'm just going to carry on being ambitious. Read through 19. Read through 19. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night now.